That's the nature of our beast. The watchwords of our industry are tradition and rules. That's so ingrained in so many people's minds as far as the golf experience needs to be this way because that's the way it's, it's written in the rule book and that's the way it's been done forever. The ironic thing is that because it's such a conservative industry that if you were to be one of those innovators or early adopters, then this is fertile ground to do that and get attention for doing that. Not everybody's clamoring to do these things. So if you're the one to offer new technology at your golf course, word will get around. You'll basically get to steal all the attention for doing these progressive things because not everybody is trying to do progressive things. But that's our job at NGCOA is to try to stoke the fires of interest, of being progressive, trying new things. And actually, that's the nice thing about being a golf course operator and running a small business is that you could try something for a season. If it works, great. If it doesn't, don't do it again. You're not a large corporation that has to go through two years of due diligence before you launch something, and then you have to stick to it for a certain number of months or years before you can back out of it. Being nimble is great value and asset of being a small business operator. So we're hoping to change people's minds and attitudes towards innovation so that they have the confidence, the wherewithal to try it more than they might have 15 years ago. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at www.mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. I want to take a moment to welcome our season four sponsor partners. We are excited and proud to have Golf Tech as our title sponsor along with supporting sponsors Fairway IQ, British Columbia Golf, and Nextlinks. Without their generous support, the Mod Golf Podcast wouldn't be able to bring you these unique golf innovation stories. Our sponsors provide you with discounts, promos, and contests all season long, and our title sponsor has one for you now. Golf Tech is pleased to exclusively offer our Mod Golf Podcast listeners $50 off both a swing evaluation and tech fit custom club fitting. Go to www.golftech.com slash modgolf to book one of the Golf Tech Improvement Centers located near you. All right, so let's get on with this week's show. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Jay Karen, who is the CEO of the National Golf Course Owners Association, or NGCOA. Jay is a golf industry influencer, keynote speaker, and passionate advocate for growing golf across all sectors of the industry. Jay, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Happy to be here, Colin. Did some illustrious guest drop out last minute for you to squeeze me in? Yeah, yeah you're so <laughs> humble. Humility is not necessary. I've, now that I've got a chance to know you a little bit here, you are perfect for this. And, and on that note, Jay, we did meet in Washington, D.C. at the National Golf Day back in April. And once you brought me up to speed on all the innovative initiatives that the NGCOA was involved with, I knew I had to get you on the Mod Golf Podcast. So with that, Jay... Uh, Let's start our conversation by you telling us a bit about yourself, your early connection with golf, and the mandate of the NGCOA. Yeah, sure thing. Well, Colin, thanks for having me. But my my love affair with the game of golf goes back, oh my gosh, about 36 years, I suppose, when I was eight years old and started playing the game with my dad and his regular foursome on Sundays. And so I've enjoyed the game forever. But my professional involvement in the game started in 1997 when I came to work for the National Golf Course Owners Association. And I, I worked in different capacities here for about 10 years and was served as director of membership for seven of those years. Then I left golf for about, oh gosh, eight or nine years. And I ran two organizations in the lodging industry and have come back to NGCOA as I came back as the chief executive officer in 2015. 
So back home in the golf industry, and N- NGCOA is among the alphabet soup of associations in golf, we represent the owners and the operators of the golf facilities. And so our mandate, if you will, is to serve their interests. And that primarily happens in three ways here at our office in Charleston, South Carolina. One, which is perennial, is going to be education, whether it's publishing Golf Business Magazine or putting on the, the conferences that we do every year. We have our own podcast, the Golf Business Podcast. We are perennially wanting to educate owners and operators on best practices and what the industry issues are. So that's number one. Two is advocacy. Most of that is public policy work and our federal legislative agenda at Capitol Hill, where at National Golf Day, as you mentioned, Colin, where we met. So we've got a lot of advocacy work. Some folks call it lobbying. We call it advocacy because not all of it is legislative. Some of it are market issues that we need to focus on, tea time, online tea time marketing and sales and how that's impacting the industry and the work that we need to do in that space. So that's two, advocacy. And the third, lastly, is what we call commerce. And that is our programs that we can bring to the table that save our members money on goods and services, rebates, things like Yamaha golf cars and Toro maintenance equipment and Pepsi products and so forth. So anything we can do to help that bottom line, we're inclined to do so. So those those are the things that we do. I would put under our mandate, Colin. That's a great start. And I, I will dig into the partnerships that you have here to make all this happen with the NGCOA. But just give our listeners a, a bit of a backstory. You did touch on it there, but how long has the NGCOA been around? I know it was a slightly different iteration in the beginning and you've morphed along the way organically. And perhaps you can tell the overarching why and the purpose and also the size and the scale and the scope of the membership, because there are almost 15,000 golf courses in the US. Yeah. And you do have a Canadian chapter here too, of course. So tell us a bit about that with the history of the NGCOA. Sure. Sure. We were founded almost 40 years ago as the Golf Course Association, the GCA. It was a bit of an outcropping from the National Golf Foundation back in the day when basically public access, privately owned, tax-paying golf courses didn't really have a voice. And so a number of golf course owners, again, daily fee kinds of courses around the country that were paying property and sales taxes and all that fun stuff, they got together and formed an organization. And it then became the National Association of Public Golf Courses. But around 1990, it finally changed to the National Golf Course Owners Association. So the nucleus and the birth of the organization was around the, I would say, mom and pop operator, essentially way back then, families that converted the the old farm into golf courses, and they needed a voice. And so that was the origination. And over time, as you, as you mentioned, it did evolve, where our membership, which is about 3,400 dues-paying courses, reflects the industry very well. We have about 600 private clubs in our organization. We have resorts and still daily fee and everything in between. So our membership is very diverse and represents really the scale of the industry. A lot of multi-course operators in our membership as well. Those that own or operate two, three, four, up to 200 golf courses are members of our organization. So yeah, that's kind of the, the profile of who we are and where we came from. Well, that's a great way to encapsulate that. Thanks for that, Jay. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show is the fact that after talking to you and, and other members of your organization and then backgrounding you, you are not just reacting to what's going on in the market. You are very proactive. You are, I consider your thought leaders and are innovative in ways that you're looking to help facilitate new opportunities within golf. And you touched on a few of them, but let's start with one where we, you and I met there and I did have national golf day. I did cover that on a podcast a couple of weeks ago when I was there. Can you tell me a bit about NGCOA's involvement also with We Are Golf and really what national golf day means for you and the organization? Sure thing. So NGCOA 
was one of the organizations that created both the Golf 2020 participation cooperative we have had in, in the United States, as well as We Are Golf. And We Are Golf has been this cooperative among several national organizations in golf that was really born out of the fact that after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans back in 2005, and the federal government passed a recovery bill that, that gave some tax incentives for redevelopment and getting back on your feet, that golf was one of several industries that was specifically excluded from qualification receiving these redevelopment benefits. We were lumped into a group of other businesses such as casinos, massage parlors, tanning salons, tattoo parlors, what is known in DC as the sin list, right? Golf was among that. Wow. Dating back to some tax code from the IRS in the 1970s, back when golf was driven a lot by the private country clubs. And so I think the sentiment back then was that private country clubs should be lumped into this group of businesses that aren't deserving of tax breaks. I think the stereotype stereotype being that country clubs are wealthy, they don't need tax breaks, bup, bup, bup. And so we were in this list. Well, it, it surfaced in 2005 and it caught us off guard as an industry. And so from that, We Are Golf was born to address Washington and let them know who we are, what our economic impact is in America, economic, cultural, charitable impact, all of those things. And so National Golf Day, which this recent one was the 11th National Golf Day, is a moment in time during the year when the industry gathers in Washington and meets with our elected officials, appointed officials, and so forth to let them know what's happening in golf. And if we have particular asks on public policy, we make those asks, whether it's on labor issues, tax issues, environmental issues, and so forth. We all come together to try to influence change in Washington that specifically hits the golf industry. So that, that's where we met. And with We Are Golf, that is an organization that you are part of, but there's many groups that are part of that, including the World Golf Foundation and the Golf Course Superintendents Association and, and a few others. I'm sure you can name them for me here. Oh, yeah. So that coming together more than 11 years ago, how have you seen that progress over time? I, I saw it firsthand, so I think I know the answer to this and we talked about this, but what are your thoughts as far as the evolution and the impact of National Golf Day and We Are Golf as you get more traction and awareness grows over the past decade or so? My point of reference on that question, Colin, is I, I worked in the travel industry for a number of years, and I was on the board of directors of the U.S. Travel Association. And surprisingly, the travel industry, as large as it is, is one of the largest industries in America, did not have a voice in Washington years ago. And so when I w started getting involved in the U.S. Travel Association, I noticed what they were doing over time in Capitol Hill and the influence that they were, were having because of things like their national day where they would storm Capitol Hill and the relationships they were building with their legislators and so forth. And we are doing the same thing in golf now where I've noticed over time, our impact is getting better because when we have these meetings on the Hill, the staff members that we see each year remember us. They remember our agenda. They can talk more fluently with us about our issues, whereas the first five to six years doing this was spent simply educating Washington that we were an industry. That's the surprising thing is coming from within golf, you think, oh, everybody understands we're an industry. No, we had to let the public policymakers, their staff, let them understand who we are as an industry and, and open some eyes. And, and because of that, we've had moments in time where legislators in Congress have made moves that might hurt golf or harm golf, and we've been able to use the relationships that we've had to stave off bad legislation or things that were inadvertently going to hurt us or whatever it might be. And so those relationships we built over time, sometimes the fruit is born not at National Golf Day, but in the intervening months when we find out things that are happening and we need to call upon those relationships that we've built. So we're, we're certainly seeing progress being made over that time. But man, as you know, Washington, nothing is easy. And especially these days, 
the climate is set against cooperation, but we remain steadfast and involved and to make sure they never forget that the golf industry in the United States is an over $80 billion industry, how many jobs we employ, that how much money we raise for charity, all the things you covered on your last podcast. So we're seeing effectiveness increase over time. We haven't necessarily passed any seminal pieces of legislation for the golf industry, but we're not necessarily looking for one piece of legislation that is golf specific, but golf is impacted by a lot of legislation. So we have to make sure that our voice is heard on when those bills come up for consideration. Yes. And and I saw it firsthand there on Capitol Hill for the couple of days there. And the fact that we're not stuck in an industry that doesn't have partisan issues, you know, golf is kind of like rainbows and butterflies. Everybody should love golf, right? <laughs> there, there should no one saying, no, this golf thing, now that you're not as badass as you once were there, that you were part of that sin group there. It's, you know, all joking aside, Jay, that, that seriously, it was just announced that it is now an $84 billion a year industry up over 20% right. since the last census was taken four or five years years ago. So it's ascending, there's growth there, it's vibrant, and it has a massive economic impact on the national economy. And we have to tell that story all the time because, you know, Washington in some regards is a revolving door of staff and and elected leaders. And so it's our duty to be there every year. And and thankfully that event in particular is growing each year. We had the biggest turnout this past year that we've had in the past. So so yeah, it's a great event for the industry and I expect it to do even more. I'm fortunate now, Colin, to serve as chair of We Are Golf for the next two years. So I'll be particularly involved in in the next two national golf days and, and what we're able to accomplish. Now that you have that role also, consensus building is and partnerships is huge for you to propel yourself forward. So you can tell us a bit about the partnerships that you have with organizations like Rainbird and Yamaha, John Deere, and the uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association, and We Are Golf. You know, it's funny because a lot of folks, when you look at associations, you, you think that they act like Switzerland, that we're supposed to be neutral in everything we do. And I think the better analogy of an organization like ours is that we're kind of like the United Nations. We do business with everybody. We have partners, you know, with a lot of organizations, a lot of sponsors and so forth in order to do the work of the organization. We're a large industry, but we're a small small industry in many regards. So we, we know we have to work together. So at NGCOA, we have some strategic relationships with certain vendors in our space like Yamaha and Toro and Rainbird. And these essentially are patrons of the organization. They financially help support NGCOA so we can do the work that is so important to the golf industry. In return, we, we offer certain marketing advantages and some preferential treatment in some of our marketing and our members also benefit oftentimes in the form of a rebate or a discount on their product. So it's a nice win-win-win when we can negotiate these kinds of relationships with industry vendors. And we also do business with the Golf Course Superintendents Association and other nonprofit organizations. And that alphabet soup we talked about a little while ago, like for example, with GCSAA, we put on the golf industry show together, the trade show that happens each winter where we have our conferences going on, but we come together and we help produce the golf industry show. We work with the PGA of America on various issues. The golf USA Tea Time Coalition. It's it's an entity that is managed and governed by both NGCOA and the PG of America to influence and watch what's happening in the online tea time space. So we work with them closely. We work with the USGA on on a lot of initiatives as well. So we're an equal opportunity organization. We'll work with anyone that's trying to do good work for the industry. Now, you talked about the conferences that you put on. I did want to touch on one of them in Las Vegas coming up in October, I believe it is. You have the Golf Business Tech Con. And I had a look at that, and it seems like your focus there is really forward thinking and really about innovation and where the golf industry is going and can go rather than where it is right now. Can you tell us a bit about the Golf Business Tech Conference? 
Sure thing. So about two years ago, two and a half years ago, we realized that it had been nearly 20 years since we put on a technology conference and nobody had in those in-between years. The last time was, I think, 1999, back when websites were barely three or four years old as a commercial concept to do anything with. Right. Obviously, a lot has happened. And so we saw the opportunity to put on this technology conference last fall, and it was a great success. It was at the Aria Hotel in Vegas, and we had a, an evening at Top Golf, and we had several technology vendors together. So the reason we do this, Colin, two reasons. One is... Well, I say maybe two or three reasons. NGC always in the event planning business. We put on an annual conference every year. We have for three decades. We put on an event every summer for the multi-course operators. We've been doing that for many, many years. And so we thought this was a natural. We're good at meeting planning. We know there's not a focal point around which the industry organizes to talk about technology. We go an inch deep on some of our conference sessions at the other conferences on technology. So we thought, well, let's let's dive a little deeper here and double down on the technology topic because we know there's so much happening here. So we brought it together and for the purpose of educating owners and operators on what's happening in the technology space, mostly operations technology, not as much consumer technology, although they obviously overlap. And also we felt it's important strategically that we put on a conference like this to show the industry that this is important to you. This needs to be important to you. You don't put on a conference like this unless the topic is strategically important to your industry. Yes. And it is. And what what we believe is that there are a lot of great technology companies in our space doing good work, but the pace and, and rate of adoption is very slow in our industry. And so if we can put on a tech con and accelerate people's propensity to try technology, experiment with it, integrate it into your business, then I think that's one of our roles as a trade association is to facilitate that. Yes, it is. It is. So there's a kind of a larger strategic issue, but also from a business standpoint, it's a good consumable kind of benefit to belong to the organization to attend an event like like that. And the profile of the typical attendee for TechCon, you're, you're looking to appeal to whom exactly? And yeah, well, that, you know, that's a good question because at first we were wondering if we were going to attract the technophile or the technophobe. <laughs> we weren't sure. And what we found was what our gut kind of told us was the technophiles, people interested in technology that want to do more, wanted to do better. So when you look at the profile of the attendee, it was the gamut. It was some of the largest multi-course owners has some of their chief technology officers there. And the, the rural golf course in the middle of Iowa had the owner there learning and even teaching some of this stuff. And so everything in between, anybody who has an interest in technology as a tool to grow the golf course business, it's hard to profile someone because sometimes you'll have owners that have no interest in this, but you'll have a PGA professional or director of golf who loves this stuff. And so they'll come and check all of this out. But generally, anybody whose posture is towards an interest in technology is who you'll see here, which is why the event works so well for the vendors as well because they had a captive audience of people who love technology and they're the technology vendors. So the discussions that were had and the energy that resulted was very, very positive. Now, technology is a huge piece to the innovation puzzle, but another one I wanted to discuss with you is the sustainability aspect of golf and golf course maintenance. And you can probably tell me, you know better than I do, but the average golf course is what, about 100, 120 acres, about that size, is that fair to say? A little bit larger. A little bit larger. Probably closer to 150 to 175, I think, yeah. Right. 
right. So even even that, so okay, got my numbers straight now. And I look at this through a slightly different lens, Jay. In a previous life, I well, I am an architect and I've worked as one for decades, and especially as a sustainability designer and lead accredited professional. So the sustainability piece is something I'm very familiar and very passionate about. So I see a lot of opportunities, and I know you've touched on these in the past, but and even with the bottom line, as far as golf course owners having a better PL sheet by making golf courses more environmentally sustainable. Right. So can you talk to that a bit about what you're doing to help facilitate that conversation and what actionable things you're putting in place for better sustainability outcomes? Sure. So the sustainability question is a complex one in the golf industry for a few reasons. Mm. One is there's this natural inclination to think that golf must not be a good player because we use chemicals and we have all this turf. And so there's this natural posture towards golf sometimes that is not positive. When when you stop and take a look at what golf course superintendents are doing now in these days, these people are scientists figuring out how to keep their land healthy and and how to handle it responsibly. So I'm going to give all the credit to the Golf Course Superintendents Association and what they've done over the decades to get their members environmentally forward in their thinking. So they deserve most of the credit. On the and, and USGA Green Section has been involved in these issues as well. The Owners Association, we tend to look at most things through the lens of business performance, right? So it gets complicated here because sometimes the most environmentally friendly practices may or may not be the most cost conscious right. or that your customer saying we want it to be as green as possible and you feel that you must kind of cave and give in to their maintenance demands as a business, even though you might be able to make more environmentally friendly decisions otherwise. And so it's a complicated thing, but the good news is that the superintendents in, in general are very cognizant of all of the complexities of environmental management and their facilities. So they do most of the work. The owners and operators, again, we, we look at the oftentimes the P&L. So if someone's going to present a golf course owner with a decision on, on something environmental, or if there's an environmental question, they may say, all right, what is the impact Going to be on my business. In addition to what is the right thing to do here, because as you talked about being lead certified and all these things, there are certain things that are the right thing to do. There are other things that are for business purposes, and you got to find that sweet spot where it's the right thing to do and it's good for your business. And so those kinds of practices, if we can learn about those, for example, the browning of certain areas of your course, like how do we figure out that it's good for your business to let, don't cut these areas, save on the man hours, save on the inputs that you might put into the ground in these areas and how that saves you money and does not disrupt the customer experience. Those kinds of stories we like to bring to our membership. We don't ever mandate, we don't ever, you know, we don't have environmental standards that we necessarily promote within NGCOA, but we do when we find great stories where people are doing environmentally friendly things and it's also helping their business. We try to publish those stories like in Golf Business Magazine or bring those kinds of sessions to our conferences. And ultimately your members are in business. They are for profit, even though you are not with your organization. Correct. And you talked about the customer experience. Are you finding over the last, let's say even not just a thin slice it over just a short period of time, let's say over the last decade, are you noticing a greater acceptance from your customers, which at the end user ultimately is the golfer or the member at a club? Are you finding now that it is moving in the direction where it has to be impeccably green and perfect for it to actually have a certain status? Are, are you finding that there's a, a sea change finally that, are you at that tipping point yet where people are saying, yeah, we kind of like this more brown, let it go more <laughs> wild. And what are your thoughts on that? I don't have anything other than anecdotal observation, Colin, yeah. obviously, you know, honestly on that one where for just from personal experience that I, I think we're seeing a softening of those expectations. I wouldn't say the browning is acceptable as much as maybe, hey, we're not going to mow this area over here. We get what's happening in these natural habitat areas or what have you. 
I don't know if people's expectations have changed much over the last 10 years as far as what they want to see on the greens and the speed and consistency of greens. I think there's a certain level of, of hope or expectation of what that's going to be. I'm seeing more golf courses make those decisions to let certain areas of the fairways maybe brown instead of doing the overseeding or whatever it might be. So my assumption is that the golf consumer is generally going along with whatever the golf course owners and operators and superintendents do. When you look at why people leave the game of golf, I, I can't imagine on the top 100 list of why people would leave the game of golf has been, I don't like what they're doing with the conditioning of golf courses anymore. So I, I think we're seeing a, a general acceptance of whatever superintendents and owners are going to do with their golf course. And if that means a slight changing in how they maintain it, I think we're not seeing anybody jump ship because of those decisions, I'm pretty sure. Did talk to one technology company and they're doing something quite interesting. I'm sure you know these guys also have them remain nameless at the moment, but through their GPS tracking of every single player, they now have this data set that they know exactly where everybody is going for every single round. And they have enough of a sample size now that they're realizing they can let certain areas go wild because balls, even at that amateur recreational level, are never going there where the assumptions that were made before, Hmm. they're realizing now as far as the maintenance, the fertilizer and especially the water, that they can just let that go. And in some cases, it's already a a decrease of almost 30% of what they were maintaining before. Have you heard those stories? Yes, I have. And I think there's nothing better than data to help make decisions about what to do with your operations, right? And so so we're seeing everything from the GPS on the golf cart technology, where you can really see where they're going, to beacon technology, to analyzing the heat mapping, where people are, are hitting the ball and where they're going. And the assumptions that were made prior to this data might be wrong is what you're saying is that right. to be able to take some areas of the course out of operation or to change pathways of things and features and these bunkers they might you might be able to take 16 bunkers out of commission and save on that maintenance cost because you're realizing through data that your golfers are never in those bunkers and the fact they never even walk near those bunkers or whatever it might be so yeah so we're definitely seeing a rise in access to good data and hopefully it'll help us make some decisions for efficiency at the operations just so our listeners can understand, and I heard this number, I'd like to hear your take on this. So the average bunker on a golf course to actually maintain that every year, it's in the thousands and thousands of dollars. Do you have actual numbers on that that you can share? I don't, but I doubt it's that high for your average bunker. I have a feeling that might be private club biased information, possibly. <laughs> I don't think a lot of public golf courses are spending thousands per bunker each year to maintain them. I mean, certainly you got a lot of folks that are raking them all the time. And so if you add up the labor hours of raking those traps and after a, a heavy rainstorm, you know, having to reconstruct it a little bit. But from a material standpoint, I can't imagine it's thousands per bunker. But it's not cheap. Yeah. And so when it, when they have to be reconstructed or, or addressed, certainly it's fairly expensive. I mean, if you look at the scale of maintenance and those that, that exist on the lower scale that don't have the ability to spend a million dollars a year in maintenance, yeah, one of the first things you may see get neglected might be the bunkers. Because if you ask a golfer, if you say, if you had to rank your top five areas of conditioning, what would you want to be prime condition? That'll be first. That'll be the greens. Right. And then it goes down from there. Yep. So you debunked that a little bit. I thought that was a little bit high too. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks for your, your response <laughs> Thank you. to that. Very good. I wanted to bounce around to another topic here, and that is diversity and inclusion. And I can see that you and the organization are a staunch supporter of adaptive golf and encouraging your golf course owners to make their facilities more accessible through the Americans with Disability Act, the ADA Act. Can you tell us a a bit about that and your involvement to grow the game in that area and your support of adaptive golf? 
Sure. So we've been uh, on the board of the National Alliance for Accessible Golf for many, many years. So we're supportive of the advancement of programs and services to encourage more people to play golf that have disabilities. PGA does a, a wonderful job with their programs and so forth. Anything we can do to give some oxygen to that, we're happy to do so. Promoting golf as a tool to be active for those with disabilities is a wonderful thing. On the other side of the coin is the legislative or the public policy side of adaptability as well. Our initial involvement with the American Disabilities Act was actually when we found that lawyers around the country were suing golf courses, trying to force them to every one of them buy a single rider golf car, as it's your responsibility as a business owner to have a single rider car available for those with disabilities. And we felt that was probably, an, well, we, we felt that was an unfair burden that every golf course in America should do that because a single rider golf car is not a cure-all for all kinds of handicaps. But we also want to follow the law and the spirit of law that is to be as accommodating as we can to those with disabilities. All the, the handicap parking and where you can take disabled vehicles onto the golf course. Yes. And can you ride these things right onto the green to do your putting? So it's a very complicated issue, but because there's the regulatory side, which we have to be mindful of. We want to support, but we don't want to overburden small businesses either with having to make every single accommodation. The Americans with Disability Act puts the onus on business owners to provide a reasonable accommodation. That's the exact phrase. And then it's up to the Department of Justice to define what is reasonable accommodation. And so we get involved in those conversations from time to time. So there's a public policy side to this column, but there's also simply the good of the game and growth and golf being a wonderful avenue for people with disabilities to be very active. So, so we're involved in all angles of that issue. Got it. And I know the application of the ADA Act as an architect, the work I've done, even though I'm based in Canada, I've done lots of work in the States. And yes, some of it could be very prescriptive, but there is room for interpretation and to be reasonable and fair. Yeah. And it sounds like you're looking for that balance. Always. We try staying away from mandating very much from our members or, or anybody mandating anything from business owners. It's kind of the American way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I just wanted to talk a bit about your organization with the uh, NGCOA. Of course, as you mentioned, you're based in Charleston, South Carolina. You're a nonprofit. Can you tell us how many staff you have a bit about the organization? I'm also very curious when I talk to my guests, whether they're for profit or not, as far as the culture and your why and your purpose and how that is instilled within the organization to get people excited to come do what they do every day. Sure. So here at the office in Charleston, we have 18 full-time staff and we have one remote employee who works at our home office in Wilmington, North Carolina. She works on our database, which now that we're all into cloud data, you can do that from anywhere. Right. We've had our headquarters here since 1990 in the Charleston area. To get to your question about the nonprofit side of it, we have a governing board of about 17 people who own and operate golf courses. And so this is their organization. We at the staff are just the custodians of it while we have our jobs to try to advance the mission of the organization. So this is their organization. It's the members. It's for golf course owners and operators. And so because the governing board is made up of people who run golf courses, then the mission that we all feel here at the office is to support their success. And that's what we do. So there are nonprofits and, and then there are nonprofits. We're not a charitable organization, right? The charitable organizations sometimes elicit what you're talking about, that feel good. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to, I'm going to try to cure cancer today, right? So it's a very different feeling, a different, very different fundraising spirit to try to accomplish certain goals for humanity or for social justice or whatever it might be. Then there are nonprofits like ours, which are trade associations, which we have a greater good mandate, and that is to support the industry and the people that operate within our industry. And that's always underpinned 
underpins everything we do here. If we can't answer those questions that our board may have for us, hey, what are we doing today to serve our members in our industry? Then we're not doing it right. So that is part of the DNA here, Colin, that we're here to help our members and the industry. And that permeates everything that we do. We have a business to run as well. So, you know, there are a lot of decisions made here to make sure that NGCOA itself is a viable and sustainable organization financially. So we have a lot of priorities on our plate to make sure that the business runs well and that the mission is being tended to. Understood. Okay, good stuff. So Jay, before I let you go here on the Mod Golf podcast, we do ask a question of what does the future of golf look like? And we explore that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think the golf industry and the game of golf will look like 20 years from now. Ah, my crystal ball. There you go. <laughs> oh gosh, I I must admit I hate crystal balling in the sense of like saying that this is the way things are going to be, but I certainly have some thoughts on where I, I think it could end up. I didn't say what you would like it to be. <laughs> sure. Okay, that's a good. All right. How does it, how does it make you how does it make you feel, Jay? <laughs> so I always say twenty years from now, I think that the golf industry the golf course side of the industry, especially, I can see it being an an indoor and outdoor experience. Right now, we think of golf as completely outdoor, but with the rise of golf simulators and the fun that millions of people are having at places like Top Golf and so forth, I could easily see that the thriving golf course 20 years from now has that traditional outdoor experience where you tee off the first tee. But also, if you only want to play golf for 90 minutes and you want to do it at 8 o'clock at night with your friends, you go to the golf course and they've got a bay of simulators set up for you to have fun and so forth. So I, I see it evolving in that direction as well as finding out new and creative ways to make it a more fun experience at the facility rather than the traditional 18 hole. Like for example, I was just in Pinehurst, North Carolina a couple weekends ago and played their new cradle course with some of my buddies. I mean, the holes range in distance from 52 yards to like 126 yards. And we had the best time with just a putter and a wedge getting out there and playing and drinking beer and having a good time. And it was just wonderful to see a place like Pinehurst evolve in that direction. And so I could see more golf courses 20 years from now, giving a very diverse experience for their clientele. So what that looks like exactly beyond some of these concepts, I'm not quite sure, but I'm hoping that there'll be more interesting facilities rather than just the 18-hole layout, that there'll be a lot more to do for families and young folks and older folks other than tee off the first tee. I really like your take on that because it's, it is about complementing what already exists, unlocking new markets and expanding there rather than, I know I use the term a bit and everybody talks about, oh, being disruptive and you're a golf disruptor or whatever that is. And to disrupt something means that you have to actually overtake or compete with something else. Whereas something like Top Golf, people say it's disruptive, but really that term is a bit of a misnomer because they haven't really disrupted the golf industry. They've actually helped to expand it in many, many facets and bring new people to the game for the first time as that gateway. So I, I like the way you're going there with that. And I do the same thing. Actually, I get out, I have a local pitch and putt just a couple miles from my house here. And I get up early 530 in the morning and I'll go and play two balls by myself around the 18 holes in an hour and a half just as practice and for fun and just clear my head. Yeah, I consider that golf. And that's really my practice, kind of my morning ritual now three, four times a week. I, I think what we'll see over time is rather than the golf industry trying to train consumers to like and want the traditional 18-hole product off the first tee, that you'll see more facilities offering what consumers are telling us that they want. 
and being able to evolve our businesses in that direction. So that again, like I said, you can go to a golf course and have six options in front of you as what do I want to do today? Do I want to tee off the first tee? Do I want to go play the simulator? Do I want to go to the driving range and engage in this gamification system that's now on the driving range to have a little fun for a while? Or whatever it might be. I think I, I want to see options. And I think that the evolved golf course 20 years from now will have multiple options based on what you want to do. And just to expand on that a little bit more, because I'm sure you have the insights because you're connected directly with all of the golf course owners. Are you finding there is this evolution or a transition with some of the properties of, let's say they have 36 holes that they're looking to convert one of the 18s into something smaller? Like I know in a course I played at a couple of years ago called Monarch Dunes in Southern California, where they had the second 18 actually it wasn't that it was just 12 holes and it was around the residential property and it was just a different experience but still it was fun and it was challenging are you finding that jay that there is other trying to recalibrate maybe their existing offering there that's a good question i think that when you see that recalibration of taking off six holes from an 18 hole facility or what have you i have a feeling most of that is driven by the value of the real estate and the owner of that business having the ability to sell off some property and still try to maintain an amenity for your local home owners, they're not being motivated by changing the product quite yet and lessening the number of holes or whatever it is because the consumers are saying, I want smaller golf. I think those are more land and economic reasons to possibly engage in some of those decisions that, gosh, we've got 36 holes here. We're zoned residential. Why don't we sell off 18 holes or nine holes and then take this other nine holes and do something interesting with it? So I think it's, it's causing people to look at their land and figure out how to maximize revenue out of it, certainly. But it, it's going to be influenced by a mixture of factors as to why people are doing that kind of thing. But to see Pinehurst invest in several acres right there, prime real estate right in front of their clubhouse to do this tells you something, tells you there is an economic vitality behind taking some acreage and turning it into a fun revenue generating business. So so yeah, we're slowly but surely starting to see courses make those decisions based on we think this is going to be better economically. It'll bring more revenue if we do this short course kind of format. Now, are you finding, because I speak at golf industry events and talk about becoming more entrepreneurial with your business, being a bit more experimental, trying certain things, almost like a startup within your existing business. And I get a lot of glazed eyes and I can see panic looks and I even ask them, if you had an extra $100,000, how many people here, show of hands, would be interested in using that to try something new, something more entrepreneurial? And very few would put up their hands. Are you finding also within your organization there, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but <laughs> overall that that is still lagging a bit behind as far as the mindset of being a bit more entrepreneurial and trying some things as an experiment that may or may not work, but you'd learn something at the end? Colin, it's hard to say if I'm seeing any changes in that regard, except that we at NGCA we represent the entire marketplace. So you're gonna—it's like a bell curve. You're gonna have you know one set of people on the on the right side of the bell curve that are experimenting. They're progressive. They're trying new things all the time. In good time or bad times, you're gonna have people doing that. And everybody in the middle who's a little bit resistant to change and doesn't want to do, and then you have the folks on the on the other side of the spectrum who never do anything, never change, and they're the ones who are most likely to go out of business at some point. So I'm not seeing a wholesale change in their approach to being entrepreneurial, but I, I'll tell you this, a couple, two things. One is the recession certainly changed, caused a mutation in the industry, meaning that no longer build it, they will come. We've had some hard times, and those hard times cause business owners to take a fresh look to say, gosh what can I do differently now to stay successful where they, they might not have thought that way before the recession. They didn't feel a need to look at their business in any different way. 
So now I think I think the environment is better, Colin, to that point, as far as those that were going to try new things and experiment. But my second point is, if you told a golf course owner operator, I've got $100,000 for you, how would you spend it? I'm not so sure investing in a new business is going to be at the top of some people's minds because they may say, holy cow, I've got de- deferred maintenance going on here. I, I've got a capital expenditure. I got to save 500 grand over the next five years to rebuild my irrigation system because I know that's coming. Or you know, my clubhouse is in need of a facelift or whatever it might be. So that, as a business owner, you're constantly weighing, if I had an extra $100,000, would I invest it in something new that might grow more revenue, which is a risk, or do I spend it on something I know needs attention right now? Now, if you said, this is restricted giving, I'm going to give you $100,000 and you must spend it on something new and different to try to grow your business. Well, who wouldn't take that, right? I mean, most people would, but if you didn't have any strings attached to it, would they spend it on something progressive and new? That's like asking a church because I say we're second only to the church as far as conservative approach to how we run our businesses. If you went to the church and said, here's $100,000, what do you think they might do with that? I don't know if they would say, well, let's go build a business out of this and try to bring in more revenue to our church. So it's tough. Running a golf course is not for the faint of heart because you have so many demands and to choose where you'd spend your money is a difficult decision. But I think the climate is different now than it was just 10 years ago for the adoption and open-mindedness towards change and entrepreneurial ideas. And again, I, I go back to the example of Pinehurst investing in what the, in this cradle. I think now that you see one of the storied conservative resorts in America, where the game of golf in America has its earliest days, to see them do this is almost like a signal to the rest of the industry. Okay, everybody, it's okay for you to do this too now, right? We're waiting for others to try things before we try things. I'd say that's a syndrome in the golf industry is waiting for someone else to try it first. So my hope is that when we see some of these household names in golf, put in golf simulators, try this short course format, playing music outside in the trees while you're enjoying this this experience, now it's going to give permission to the rest of the industry that you can do this too. Seems like someone else goes out there and validates it. And yes, then they uh, will dip their toe in it. It's interesting when you mentioned about the validation, the lack of the number of hands being raised there when I asked, would you do something more entrepreneurial if you had the chance and, and had the money? It's very similar to what they call the, the innovation adoption curve. You may have seen this, that it's this curve that it's got a big lump in the middle. And at the very front, maybe only 5 or 10% is what they call the innovators. People that, those are back in the day, the people that would line up overnight in the rain to actually get the first iPhone because they wanted to be that person, right? And then you get that second 30% of they call the early adopters once you get some traction. And then there's the other 35% or so on the over the hump of the curve right. of the late adopters. And then at the end, you have the laggards, those people with the phone. They still use, be using a rotary phone that was stuck on their wall if they still had the option to, because why change? <laughs> so, so, so it seems like golf and the golf course owners is very much following lockstep that innovation model. Right. So it certainly is not a criticism against them. Oh, yeah. That's the nature of our beast. I mean, this industry, the watchwords of our industry are tradition and rules, right? I mean, so that's so ingrained in in so many people's minds as far as the golf experience needs to be this way because that's the way it's it's written in the rule book or that's the way it's been done forever. Or so yeah, it's it's a difficult environment to actually the ironic thing maybe is that because it's such a conservative industry that if you were to be one of those innovators or early adopters, then this is a fertile ground to do that and get attention for doing that. Not everybody's clamoring to do these things. So if you're the one to offer new technology at your golf course, word will get around. 
you'll 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 basically get to steal all the attention for doing these progressive things because not everybody is trying to do progressive things, right? But that's our job at NGCOA is to try to stoke the fires of interest of being progressive, trying new things. And actually, that's the nice thing about being a golf course operator and running a small business is that you could try something for a season. If it works, great. If it doesn't, don't do it again. You're not a large corporation that has to go through two years of due diligence before you launch something, and then you have to stick to it for a certain number of maybe months or years before you can back out of it, right? So being nimble is great value and asset of being a small business operator. So we're hoping to change people's minds and attitudes towards innovation so that they have the confidence, the wherewithal to try it more than they might have 15 years ago. Well, I'm certainly trying to do my part here on the Mod Golf podcast of uh, shining a light on some of those nimble, agile up and comers here also, not just the established players already, but also the ones that are the scrappy entrepreneurs that, and you know, some may make it and some may not, but yes, they, they certainly have ideas and products they brought to market that can help move everything forward here. So, hey, Jay, I could literally, I could talk to you all day here, but we probably should wrap this up because I know you have other things to do here too. So before I do, Jay, can you let our listeners know where they can find out more information uh, about the NGCOA? Sure. I'm going to list off a few websites for you. I mean, our main website is ngcoa.org and you can get to anything from there. That's kind of our home base. But also I encourage people to check out golfbusiness.com, which is our magazine, Mm -hmm. Golf Business Tech Con. So you can find out what's happening this this October in Las Vegas. Golfbusinessconference.com for our annual convention that will be in San Diego this February. And lastly, check out Golf USA Tea Time Coalition at teatimecoalition.org to see the work that we are doing with the PG of America on the tea time space. So, so everybody check out all those places on the web to, to get a good idea of what we're doing for the industry. Good stuff. I will include all those links you just mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And I'll also sprinkle a couple of those in in your guest bio section with the podcast also, Jay. Happy to do that. So, hey, why don't we leave it at that? This this has been a great conversation. You've certainly educated me on a lot of the great things that you do with the NGCOA. So I thank you for that. So, Jay, love to talk to you again. Maybe, hopefully this will be a recurring thing when you, because you guys are always doing new things. So I'd love to chat again down the road sometime on the Mod Golf Podcast with you. So thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure, Colin. Anything that's happening in the golf industry has an impact at the golf course level at some point. So anytime you need a perspective, happy to join you. Sounds great. All right, Jay, you take care. Have a great day. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with National Golf Course Owners Association CEO, Jay Karen. The one comment Jay made that really stuck in my mind was when he said, Our job at the NGCOA is to stoke the fires of interest that encourage golf course operators to be innovative, progressive, and try new things. Was there something Jay said that resonated with you? Tweet us at Mod Golf Podcast or post a comment on our Facebook page to start the conversation. I'd love to hear what you have to say. If you want to learn more about the NGCOA, go to their website at ngcoa.org where you can find their resources and initiatives, such as Golf Business Magazine and all the golf conferences that they stage. Thanks again to our Season 4 title sponsor partner, Golf Tech, along with our supporting partners, Fairway IQ, British Columbia Golf, and Nextlings for helping make the Mod Golf Podcast happen. And don't forget about your Golf Tech offer for $50 off for both a swing evaluation and tech fit custom club fitting, which you can redeem at www.golftech.com modgolf. Join me next week when I speak with Amy Cho, who is a golf professional, social media influencer, certified golf fitness coach, entrepreneur, and creator of the popular golf instruction YouTube channel, Golf with Amy. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, you can find more of our golf innovation stories on previous episodes at www.mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.